Beginning in Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then the Lord appeared to him, that is, Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And so they said, do as you have said. And so this man, he offers them a meal, and like any good man, then he runs to his wife and asks her to prepare it. (laughs) So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, And he hastened to prepare it. And so he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And so he said, She's here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. There's a man who lives at 314 Clinton Avenue in the city of Metropolis. He has a sturdy build, black hair, he wears glasses, He grew up on a farm in Smallville, Kansas, but he hails from the planet Krypton. When the laws are obeyed and the city is at peace, he works at a newspaper at the Daily Planet with his friends Lois and Jimmy. But when the bad guys, when they hit the streets with their diabolical schemes, Mild-mannered Clark Kent, he ducks into the nearest phone booth and emerges as the greatest comic book superhero of all time, the legendary Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. It's a bird? No, it's a plane. No, it's Superman. And yet Superman has a fatal flaw. An Achilles heel. He has a chink in his armor. For there is one substance that saps the strength right out of Superman. You know what it is? 
Yep, it's uh, angel food cake. No, that's my, that's my problem. No. It's ice cream right before you go. That's my problem. No, it's a green radioactive mineral found on a distant planet called kryptonite. Now, if I ask you, is there anything too hard for Superman? We'd all say yes. He can do almost anything except escape from that deadly grip of kryptonite. You see, it seems to be true of all our superheroes. That as powerful as they are, they all have a lethal liability. If they were totally invincible, the plot would be too predictable. I mean, the story would lack any kind of suspense at all. If they were totally invincible, you know, we would know where the story was going before it was ever written. Besides, we as human beings are so conspicuous of our own limitations, it's hard for us to imagine anything or anyone truly invincible. We all have our kryptonite, don't we? We all have our besetting sins, our fatal flaws. We all have our weaknesses. That's why when we draw up a superhero, he has to have at least one problem, one insurmountable defect. There is, though, one superhero who is totally invincible, for whom nothing is impossible. And he's not legendary, but he's living. He's not fictional. He's factual. And you don't learn of him reading about him in the pages of a comic book. No. You open up the Bible and you realize his reality in everyday life. Abraham learned firsthand what the Bible teaches us all. That there is nothing, no nothing, too hard for God. And most Christians, when I say that, would nod in agreement. When we discuss God's omnipotence, most people would have no problem. They would say, sure, God can do anything. I believe that. But do you really believe? Do you really believe that statement? In fact, let me ask it to you another way. Do you live as if that statement is true? You see, all too often we worry and we doubt and we wonder what we'll do if God doesn't come through. We view our own personal plot as unpredictable. Our outcome as uncertain. We live in such selfless or such needless suspense because somewhere deep down inside we're afraid that somehow God might fail us. We act as if God has some fatal flaw that He's been hiding. That God has His kryptonite. Hey, this was Sarah's attitude when the Lord came to her to renew His promise of a child. Sarah was 90 years old when Abraham and the Lord himself sat down for dinner under the trees of Mamre. Sarah was in the wintertime of her life. Abe was 10 years her elder. And one day, three men approached their tent. Verse 1 prefaces the story by pointing out that one of these men was the Lord himself. Probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Yep, the baby born in Bethlehem had been to earth before. Around the year 2200 B.C., the Lord Jesus and two angels came to Abraham's tent on a hot summer day. You see, Sarah knew that God is almighty. 
She knew that nothing is impossible for him. Sarah was a believer. She believed the stories of creation and of the flood and Noah and of Babel and the tower. Any other time, she'd be happy to declare her faith in God's omnipotence and in the certain reality of miracles. That is, until she was confronted by this bizarre nonsense of her having a child. And so she laughed. She chuckled inside. In her heart of hearts, the old girl mocked God. In Genesis 18 verse 12, we're told, Sarah laughed within herself. It wasn't out loud. She laughed within herself. But you see, the Lord hears our secret snickers. He does, doesn't he? He asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, surely, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? And then the visitor asked again, and I'm sure it was loud enough for Sarah to hear. She was listening. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? In the days of Jeremiah, the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by the Babylonian army. The sacking of the city was imminent. But God spoke to Jeremiah's strange request. He told the prophet to buy a track of prime real estate. Jeremiah's purchase was the most ludicrous financial investment of all time. I mean, in a few days, all the property within and without Jerusalem was going to be possessed by the Babylonians. God was asking Jeremiah to purchase land that he would never occupy. I mean, why waste the moolah? In Jeremiah 32 verse 17, the prophet is bewildered. He prays, Ah, Lord God! You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you, but you have said to me, buy the field for money. And yet the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Jeremiah recognized the truth that God is the creator. He is the sustainer of the universe. That nothing is impossible for God But when the prophet finishes his prayer, the Lord questions him with his very own words. It's as if he's saying, do you really believe this, Jeremiah? We're told in verse 27, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? God will see to it that one day the Jews will retrieve their land But does Jeremiah believe God's word to the extent of acting on it and going out and buying that property even when he sees no possibility of occupation? The Lord is asking Jeremiah what he's asking Sarah and what he's asking you and me today. You say you believe, but do you really? You see, most of us, we're well-taught believers We have little problem affirming our faith in the doctrine of God's omnipotence. Theoretically speaking, we believe. We can even argue the existence of miracles until God personalizes a promise. Until He monograms a miracle. We're all in until He puts our initials on it. And He says, this is a miracle that I want to perform in your life. That's when we suddenly get antsy and skeptical and our faith gets weak. I can sing the right songs. I can quote the right creeds. I can memorize all the right verses. And I can make the right statements of faith. But do I really, truly believe? 
Here in Genesis 18, the Lord is challenging Sarah. And He's challenging us. Are we believing or are we just bluffing? Believing or bluffing? How real is your faith? Back in America's pioneer days, a weary traveler had come to the banks of the mighty Mississippi River. It was early winter and the river was frozen. The traveler had to cross on foot, but he was scared that the frozen water might not be able to sustain his weight. And so he dropped to his knees and his hands and he started inching his way, crawling his way across the ice. Well, halfway across the sheet of ice, the timid trailblazer, he heard some singing and some laughter. He turned around to see a joyous old man driving a wagon loaded down with coal. The heavy wagon rumbled right across the ice, right by him. The crawler had been afraid that the ice would crush under his weight, when in reality, the ice was able to support a wagon filled to the brim with healthy coal. But this describes you and me. All too often, we're creeping through life on our hands and knees. Each move is filled with worry and fret. We live in a sweat, wondering if the ice underneath us is about to crack. And it's all because we're not quite sure if God is able to hold us up. Your life would be carefree, would it not? You could be singing and laughing if you had faith. Three attitudes got in the way of Sarah's faith. I want to talk about them this morning. First was the limitations of her hands. Second, the logic in her head. And third, the laughter in her heart. The limitations of her hands, the logic in her head, and the laughter in her heart. And these same three conditions stunt and they undermine our faith if we let them. Notice the first impediment to Sarah's faith was the limitations of her hands. I'm sure that when she heard the Lord's promise, her first thought was, We've tried! We've tried and tried and tried. For 70 years, we've done all that's humanly possible. I've been to the gynecologist. Abe has been to the urologist. We've gotten our cards punched so many times, the visits are now free. We've been tested. I've been taking my temperature every morning. We've kept track of my most fertile times. We spent the kids' college fund on fertility drugs. We've done all we possibly can, and still the crib is empty. And if it hasn't happened for us now, it's not going to happen. I can hear Sarah's conclusion. And if we've done all that we can do, what else then can God do? In Matthew 19, verses 24 through 26, Jesus told His disciples, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were puzzled by this. They they answered Him. They said, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Too many times we project our own limitations upon God. You see, as long as I can identify or I can formulate a way for this situation to occur, then I can believe it will happen. But the moment I run out of options, 
when it becomes impossible for me, when it surpasses my limitations, then I conclude it must be impossible for God. J.I. Packer, he writes this, Though modern people cherish great thoughts of man, as a rule, they have small thoughts of God. That's our problem. We opt for confidence in our own puny selves rather than faith in an almighty, omnipotent, all-powerful God. In the days of the prophet Elisha, the city of Samaria was under siege by by the Syrians. To make matters worse, there was a famine in the land. The whole region had been struck by a severe famine. Food was so scarce, you could go to Kroger and a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels. Wow, donkey heads were expensive. I'm sure you can get a donkey head today a lot cheaper than that. And a dove's droppings would cost you five shekels. My, oh my, talk about serious inflation. I don't know the current price for dove droppings, but I'll bet it's less than five shekels. I'm sure you can go to Kroger and get a pint or two of dove droppings pretty cheap. In fact, the conditions in Jerusalem were so dire, so desperate, that women were actually killing their babies and eating their own babies for food. The people of Israel had resorted to cannibalism. Things were so bad. We learn from the scripture that the famine was the result of the king's sin, sin, but the king wanted to blame Elisha. And so he sent a battalion of soldiers to arrest the prophet. In 2 Samuel, or 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 1, Elisha tells the king's men to return with this message. He says, Tomorrow, about this time, a siah, which was a measurement of about eight gallons, of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two siahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And that represented a massive shift in Israel's economy. Prices are going to come down. You're going to get all the Fine flour you need at cheap prices. In fact, one of the royal officers who heard Elisha's message to the king, he scoffed at such a prediction. That was impossible. He said, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And Elisha said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Here's how the story ends. There were lepers outside of Samaria's walls who lived on the city's garbage. But because of the famine, there were few scraps coming over the top of the walls. So instead of starving to death, they decided to go over and surrender to the enemy. If they killed them, well then fine. They'd put them out of their misery. If they took them as prisoners, well then great. They'd get prison rations. Well, the next morning they walked into the enemy's camp, but there was no one there. I mean, the whole army had gone A-W-O-L. In the middle of the night, God had confused the Syrians. They had heard noises that they thought were horses and chariots. They assumed that Israel had hired Egyptian mercenaries to rescue them. They all left and fled. The hungry lepers walked in and they found enough food still on the table to feed the whole city of Samaria. In fact, there was such a surplus that a sea of fine flour sold for a single shekel. The word of the Lord had been perfectly fulfilled. And when that scoffing officer rushed out into the gate of Samaria, he got caught in the stampede of the people rushing out, the hungry people rushing out to get fed. He was trampled and he was killed, just as the prophet predicted. He saw it, but he never ate it. 
King's officers scoffed at the prospects of a miracle because he didn't see how it could get carried out. But you see, God had resources that he knew nothing about. God has resources you know nothing about. We forget who God is. Psalm 115 verse 3 tells us, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. We should realize that our God has limitless resources. Martin Luther once wrote to his friend Erasmus, Your thoughts of God are too human. Sadly, that's our problem. We project our own human limitations on God. You see, man measures according to the degree of difficulty. A touchdown counts six points, while a field goal counts three points. Why? Because scoring a touchdown is more difficult than kicking a field goal. Unless you're the field goal kicker, and there's only seconds on the clock and the pressure's on you, but that's another story. If you sink a basket standing under the goal, it counts two points. But if you make a shot from 21 feet out, it earns you three points. Why? Because the greater the distance... Of the shot, the greater the difficulty, and the greater the difficulty, the more points. But degree of difficulty doesn't apply to a limitless God. I mean, if nothing is impossible, then one situation isn't any more difficult or demanding than another. In other words, if we have faith to ask God to heal a head cold, why don't we ask God to heal a terminal cancer? Or even cause an amputated leg to grow back? I mean, when nothing is impossible, healing a cancer should be just as easy as healing a head cold. We hinder God when we project on Him the limitations of our own hands. That's what Sarah did. The second impediment to Sarah's faith was the logic in her head. What the Lord promised Sarah not only surpassed the boundaries of her abilities, it exceeded the limits of her imagination. It just wasn't logical. I mean, a 90-year-old woman conceiving a child, carrying it to term, then delivering it successfully, she just couldn't fathom that. Sarah had already maneuvered through menopause. And Abe, he was pushing 100. Not exactly at his peak potency. I mean, you didn't have to possess a degree in physiology to know that this is not supposed to happen. You remember, this was the dilemma that Mary faced when the angel told her that she had been chosen by God to have a child. In Luke chapter 1, verse 34, she asked, How can this be, since I do not know a man? I mean, Mary had never had any classes in biology, but but she was smart enough to know virgins don't get pregnant. God was suggesting to her the illogical. But that's when the angel said to Mary, For with God... Nothing will be impossible. We need to realize that real faith takes our minds where they can no longer figure. Over the last generation, mankind has made enormous technological progress. I mean, did you realize the world's aggregate knowledge now doubles every two years? Every two years. The life's work of an engineer who lived before the computer age can now be duplicated in 30 seconds on a PC. In 1000 B.C., King David's fastest mode of travel would have been horseback. When he sent a letter, it was by messenger. 
And if he ever got tired of politics and needed another job, his best chance was in agriculture. Now fast forward 2,700 years, George Washington, if he wanted to get some, somewhere, the fastest way he could do it is on a horse. When he sent correspondence, it was by messenger. And if General George ever needed a job, his best bet was on the farm. I mean, in 3,700 years, things hadn't changed much. But jump ahead now from Washington just 200 years till today. Today, if a man wants to travel, he climbs aboard a 757 and soars through the sky at 600 miles per hour. If he wants to send a letter, he does it instantly through email. And if he's looking for a job, there are any number of vocations that he can pursue. Human knowledge has increased. But here's our problem. With all our knowledge, it has caused us to think that we know it all. If there's something we don't understand... If it's beyond our ability to figure out, we assume it's impossible. It can't exist. It won't occur. If I can't fit it under my microscope, if I can't scan it through my computer, then it must not be true. How arrogant is that? We have deified our own human intellect. The creed of an entire generation today has become, if I can't explain it, I won't believe it. And thus we scoff at the supernatural. Reminds me of the dad who asked his son what he learned in Sunday school that morning. His son told him the story of Moses. The father said, well, son, why don't you recite it to me? He said, well, Moses, he, he went behind enemy lines to rescue the Hebrews. And then he built a pontoon bridge so he could cross the Red Sea. And then he radioed for the B-52s to come and drop bombs on the Egyptians. The dad turned to his little boy and he, and he asked, he said, wait a minute, son. That's not really what your teacher told you, was it? little guy kind of scratched his head and he says, No, Dad, but if I told you the truth, you'd never believe it. <laughs> the Jews in Israel today, they wear yarmulkes. I'm sure you've seen the Jews' little skull cap. I'm sure you've seen them. Uh, when I was in Jerusalem not too long ago, I bought several yarmulkes. There's a real cool shop on Ben Yehuda Street where you can buy all kinds of different yarmulkes. Matter of fact, here's my bulldog yarmulke. I, I wear this one on the high holy days in the fall of the year, you know, during the football season. And then just in times for baseball season, I guess I got me a new yarmulke this year. I got me an Atlanta Braves yarmulke. There you go. But did you know why the Jews wear these yarmulkes? I had an Israeli tell me they wear them because it reminds them that there's someone over them. That there's someone higher than them. Oh, we would do well to wear that reminder. It might keep us humble. For it is our intellectual sophistication that hinders our faith. This is why God will sometimes work in ways that deliberately challenge what appear logical and rational. He loves to wait until the odds are ludicrous and until the situation is utterly hopeless. You remember when the messenger came and told Jesus that his friend Lazarus was sick. Jesus waited. He deliberately delayed. By the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus had been dead four days. You know, there was a Jewish superstition at the time that a person's spirit remained close by until after they were dead. Hope for three days after they were dead, hoping that they would have an opportunity to reenter the body. But after three days, 
They left. Any possibility of resuscitation was deemed hopeless. That's why Jesus waited four days. He wanted to make sure that old Lazarus was dead as a doorknob. When Jesus asked if, they'd open, if they would open Lazarus' tomb, you remember what the dead man's sister Martha told him? Lord, he stinketh. I love that verse. Lord, he stinketh. And he did. He'd been dead four days. Martha believed that Jesus could heal Lazarus because she had seen healings before with her own eyes. But she never considered he could raise the dead. That would be untenable to her. And yet Jesus did the illogical to demonstrate that his power supersedes our logic. Hey, this is the reason God thinned out the army of Israel from 32,000 troops down to 300. This meant that the Midianites now outnumbered Gideon 450 to 1. I mean, the victory that God was engineering would leave no question whatsoever as to who deserved the glory. All the credit would belong to God. This is also the reason that God used a little boy named David to slay the Philistine giant, Goliath. I mean, instead of an Israeli champion, God used this untried, untested kid. God loves to use the absurd to show off his power. As he told the Corinthians, he loves to use the weak to defeat the mighty, the foolish to confound the wise. Why do you think he chose me to be your pastor? And this is why God waited until feeble Sarah was 90 years old and old ancient Abraham had reached 100 to give them a child. Why? Because God loves to anoint the absurd. His works highlight our ignorance even as they demonstrate His power. There's an Italian proverb, He who leaves God out of the equation does not know how to count. God loves to defy human limits and human logic to fulfill His purposes. God's miracles not only demonstrate His power, but they also humble our intellect and they stretch our faith. Poet Annie Flint, she writes this, I know not, but God knows. Oh, blessed rest from fear. All my unfolding days to Him are plain and clear. Each anxious, puzzled why from doubt or dread that grows finds answer in this thought. I know not, but He knows. I cannot, but God can. Oh, balm for all my care. The burden that I drop, His hand will lift and bear. Though eagles' pinions tire, I walk where once I ran. This is my strength to know. I cannot, but God can. The third and the final impediment to Sarah's faith was the laughter in her heart. Sarah laughed because she doubted. Not only God's ability to bless, but more seriously, she doubted God's willingness to bless. You see, Sarah had made a real mess out of her family life. She, she had tried to help God keep His promise of a son. Her impatience, her self-reliance, it created a tragedy. You remember when God first made Sarah the promise, she was 65 years old. And I'm sure she, initially she believed God. But as the years rolled on, I mean, she started to think of ways to help God out. I mean, you've got to be kidding. Finally, she gave her handmaid, Hagar, to Abraham to bear a child on her behalf. Hagar was the first surrogate mom. 
She went into the tent that day a maid, but she came out a mom. Of course, Sarah's intentions failed miserably. Hagar became a hassle. Her child was more than Sarah could handle. She tried to help God, but it all backfired. In fact, walk the streets of East Jerusalem today, and you can still feel the tension between Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael, the Jews and the Arabs. Sarah's progeny is still reaping the consequences of her sin. And I would imagine that Sarah assumed that because of this huge blunder, that God had nullified His promise. That if God had planned on giving her a child, well, she's blown it now. I wonder how many of us have given up on our dream. What we thought was a God-given promise. In fact, if the promise was repeated to you today, how would you react? Would you snicker? Would you laugh to yourself? Would you roll your eyes? I believe that Sarah had reasoned away her miracle. Well, if God had ever wanted to give me a child, I don't deserve it now. Sarah's laugh indicated that she not only doubted God's power and His wisdom, she also doubted His mercy and His love. His kindness, and above all, His forgiveness. It's been been said, some of us believe that God is almighty and may do all, that God is all wisdom and can do all, but that God is all love and will do all. There we stop short. I I want to say to you this morning that your sin is not God's kryptonite. It's not. At times, we'll trust God to do something great until we sin. After we blow it, we think that God has backed out, that my sin has voided His plans, that I'm no longer usable. But that is not true. God doesn't give up on us when we sin. The Bible tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from sin. Even when we sin, God remains as determined as ever to use us and to grow us and to mature us. Hey, nothing is too hard for God. Of course, that doesn't mean that God's going to give us whatever we want whenever we want it. I mean, He doesn't work at the snap of our fingers. God refuses to be used or manipulated. His power serves His purposes, not our whims and wishes. It's been said of God, and it's true. He has us in His hands, but we never have Him in ours. God is in charge, not us. But I love Philippians 4 verse 13 because I love how boldly Paul conveys this promise. How lavish this promise truly is. Let me read it to you in the Amplified Version. He says, I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through Him who infuses inner strength into me. That is, I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. Do you have that kind of confidence? That kind of God confidence? Again, let me state it. God has no kryptonite. His awesome power is not only infinite and invincible, it's also gracious and clothed in mercy. Once there was a pastor, he saw a little boy coming out of Sunday school and he wanted to test the little boy's Bible knowledge. He asked him, he said, tell me one thing God can do, son, and I'll give you this shiny new apple. Well, the little boy replied, sir... I'll give you a whole barrel of apples if you can tell me one thing God cannot do. Nothing is impossible for God. 
How do you answer the question the Lord put to Abe and Sarah? Is there anything too hard for God? Don't let the limitations of your hands or the logic in your head or the laughter in your heart get in the way of you trusting our living and limitless Lord. He's a loving Lord too. So here's the question one more time. Are you just quoting the right words? Are you just going through the religious motions? Or do you really believe God's promises? Are you believing? Or are you bluffing? Eugene Clark was a hymn writer and a musician. Yet he suffered from crippling arthritis. Over time, his fingers no longer cooperated with his musical instincts. But Eugene Clark, he never gave up. Even when his eyes became blind, he never gave up. He asked for a recorder to be brought to his bed. And he composed his praise to God through dictation. And I want to close this morning with his most popular hymn. It was written in 1964. It became his anthem. It goes like this. Nothing is impossible when you put your trust in God. Nothing is impossible when you're trusting in His Word. Hearken to the voice of God to thee. Is there anything too hard for me? Then put your trust in God alone and rest upon His Word for everything. Oh, everything. Yes, everything is possible with God.